This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps, keeping the wolves at bay. The Sheepdog never questions why, it simply does its job with honor and vigilance. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces, our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. Now we are honored to serve them. Introducing Sheepdog Java. We're more than just a coffee company. Sure, our specialty blends will help folks like you create the finest cup of coffee you've tasted. But what's even more special is that we're partnering with American Valor Foundation through the Chris Kyle Memorial Benefit to help fund training and professional development for first responders nationwide. We know training budgets are tight. Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack. Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. I have to apologize a little bit in advance here. My voice probably doesn't sound uh, like it normally does because I have a little bit of a head cold. Uh, I know everybody gets a head cold to run out and getting COVID tested, but this is just a cold. So this week, um, what we want to talk about is politics and crime. I don't want to talk about politics in the sense of regular politics of the world, but political decisions and politicians that are making decisions that are affecting crime in this country. And normally it wouldn't be a topic that I would want to put in because I really try to stay away from everything political, but they're having such an impact on crime levels, crime waves. And um, we as a society are living in these cities and in these areas where things are getting more and more dangerous in certain certain neighborhoods, not, not everywhere. I'm not one of these people that want to push a panic button and say, oh my God, we're all going to die. 
But there are definitely certain areas that uh, that are having issues, and I want to talk about some of those issues because I think they're um, they're worth bringing up. And there's some things about them that we can discuss that the media will at large will not discuss. They just want to stay away from it because it doesn't fit their narrative. I mean, you've heard me go on about the media before and what a, what a disaster they have become. I heard somebody some say uh, the other day is journalism has become activism. I mean, think about that. What a great line. Journalism has become activism. There's almost no objectivity at all. When I wake up in the morning, I, uh, I grab myself a cup of coffee, sheepdog Java coffee. And what I do is I'll turn on various news networks. Uh, I will bounce from one to the other to the other just to see what they're saying. I mean, somewhere in the middle, we can figure things out. I go so far as to go to BBC in the UK to get American news sometimes. People might say, oh, that's a liberal news network. Well, it's a lot less screwed up than CNN and MSNBC, I can tell you that. Uh, and it's not super left or super right leaning in any way. They're, they also don't have a dog in this fight. So they, they pretty much tell a story and move on. We're here. Our media will beat something to death uh, and, and go on and on and on for days. So today is January 7th, 2022 that I'm recording this. Yesterday was the one year anniversary of the infamous January 6th uh, rioting and uh, protesting down at the U.S. Capitol building. It's interesting because, you know, between the politicians and the media, man, we are being led down a path of lunacy because they keep calling it the insurrection. They love it. And here's the thing about that. There is an actual federal statute for insurrection, rebellion and insurrection. Nobody in this case that I know of at this point has been charged with insurrection but they want to keep calling it that. So here's the deal. If you're not charging anybody a year out and you've charged hundreds of people in, you know, things from uh, illegally entering a federal building, upsetting a public meeting, criminal mischief. I think there has been some assaults, but nothing like insurrection. So if there has been nobody charged, why in God's name would you keep calling it an insurrection? You might say to yourself, it's because of politics. They need it. The midterms are coming, folks. We got we to gotta make it look like a certain group of people, whatever it may be on any given day, are lunatics. So we're going to call it an insurrection until it no longer benefits us, when in fact there is no charges of insurrection anywhere. But that's just one example of, of how we look at crime. It all depends on what we need at any given time on any given day. And when I say we, meaning the media or the politicians, the politicians drive a lot of it, but the media drives a, a lot more of it. And, and the rest of us people, you know, the folks at home going to work every day when the alarm clock goes off, we're just sitting there going, well, man, what's on the news? And we watch it. Well, here's the thing. If you watch something over and over and over, and they just beat the same message into your head, most people are going to start to end up believing it. Like I have family members that watch CNN religiously. I got one that watches it constantly and believes everything they're saying. I mean, it's just, that's, yeah, that's like the gospel. It's like going to church. 
and you you know you don't argue i don't argue i mean that's what somebody wants to do people have their freedom of choice in this country that's what it's all about just don't be don't be sheep don't be the sheep that follow the wolves you know follow right to the the slaughter which is kind of what's been going on so let's let's dive into a little bit of the the root cause of some of the political you know lunacy that's going on here and what they all want so Every political party, whether it's Republican or Democrat, right? They always they're always broken up into some sort of factions within. My personal humble opinion is the Republicans can't seem to get together on anything. And it's probably their biggest downfall. Now, the people that are hardcore into politics, they think they can, but the truth is they can't. Because there's a lot of conservative people out there that just go to work and they don't want to be bothered with all the bullshit of everything that's going on, and they're really not part of it. They don't sit there and watch you all day long. But there is a division. They never can seem to get together. The Democrats do get together. They do. They have a lot more solidarity. But up until recently, because you have this ultra left-wing progressive bunch of jackasses that are coming up with like head-scratching ideas and comments that are just insane. insane. And the more moderate Democrats are starting to say, yeah, I don't really go for that. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there. That's not my, my thing. So no. And they're, they're kind of backing off a little bit. So you're seeing a little bit of a, a family tiff or breakup, sometimes even in the Democratic Party right now. And the midterms are coming. So they're all panicking. Both sides are going to try to work the system hard. And some of the things that they put out are public service interest things like crime. They, they want to talk about crime. Well, let's do that. Let's talk about crime and where it is going where it's gone in some cities and where it's going. In earlier episodes, we talked about places like Portland and Seattle. I have nothing against the people that live there. Most of the people that live there that just get up every day and go to work. I mean, they're great people. They, you know, Seattle, it's like the American hub of coffee. So it's like, to me, it's a little bit like Mecca. However, the rest of it, they've fallen through their ass. It's uh, chop zones, chaz zones, this, that, the other thing. I mean, this is insanity that we let this go on. And on and on. And it's a lot of it is the local politicians level. A lot of folks say, well, you know, maybe the federal government should get involved. Well, there's states' rights and there's states' responsibilities that form the foundation of this country that we have to honor. We just expect some of these people to do their job. But it's not all their fault. Because if these people act like jackasses, okay, like the governor of California, they recalled him and then they kept him. So he's yours. Okay, he's yours. You own it. You decided to keep it again. So every bit of disaster that comes with Gavin Newsom is yours, California. Sorry. I mean, he's he hasn't really done anything for you except drive business, big, big, big business out of California at an alarming alarming rate. So all your taxes and all that are, you know, all all that all that uh, industry that he's pushing out. It's not helping you, among other things that he's doing. But my point is, you keep putting these people in place. Barack Obama said it best, and he did say it best. And it's been said before, but he, he's the most recent one that really says it. Elections have consequences. Well, they do. And they really do when you're in a jurisdiction where a lot of your public officials are elected. Your district attorneys, your judges, your attorneys general. Um, you know, obviously your governors are all elected. There's only a few states that are, that don't 
um, allow the people to decide who who their judges and whatnot are. But most of them do. Now, there's good and bad with everything, right? If you're going to elect them, elect people that are going to, you know, do what they're supposed to do. When you elect somebody and they become this almost maniacal cause of destruction of your community and your society, well, don't 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 cry about it. You did this. You put these jerk offs in place. And I'm going to go through a list of some of them recently that have made the headlines. And we're going to talk about 16 cities that have just broke their records for homicide rates. And why? We're going to talk a little bit about why. We're going to talk about some very influential people in a very bad way. Uh, influential in a bad way. And um, we'll, we'll even touch a little bit on racial issues that keep getting brought up and a lot of them are being brought up by some of these people I'm going to bring up as far as district attorneys. So I figure first things first, there are 16 cities, at the end of this year, there are 16 cities, and I'm going to go through them, where politics played a role. And I th- I'm going to pretty much explain, I think, how it all happened. So they have set, 16 cities have set homicide records, and some of them are not what you think. It's not going to be Chicago and things like that. And that's just a killing zone on its own. And it always has been and probably always will be because you keep electing people that are, you know, they embrace it. Somebody like Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? Their homicide, their mayor is Tim Keller, Tim Keller. This guy's pretty squared away, right? He's supposed to be graduate of Notre Dame, Harvard business school. I mean, right. He's, he's a young guy. He's 44 years old or 45 years old. And he's, he's the mayor of Albuquerque. Well, they jump from 93 to 107 homicides. That's Albuquerque. Atlanta, that might not shock you with everything that's going on in Atlanta. You got the mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. We've talked about her before. If you remember, she was one of those ones that was going to make a run and potentially with uh, President Biden to be on the vice presidential uh, ticket there as a, as, a, as a nominee for a vice president candidate. So she was all about the politics, right? She's also all about running her city into the ground from a, from a standpoint of, of crime. They actually set a new record. Atlanta did. Austin, Texas, you would think, right? The Republic down there, they're good. Austin is it's like a little oasis. All the Texans that I know, and I know quite a few of them, they talk uh, about Austin as it not even really being Texas. And there's a lot of industry moving into Austin. A lot of the uh, computer software world and, and whatnot, technology industries are moving there. And it's a dynamic economy. But they just set a record on homicides. Their mayor is Steve Adler. Now, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta, she's an attorney. You're going to hear this coming back over and over and over. Steve Adler, Austin, another attorney, again, set a homicide record. Why? What's going on there that you think that that too should be happening? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I didn't realize what a screwed up city this was, but it's apparently it's pretty violent. There's a lot of violence there. They set a new record at, I believe, 110. Um, or maybe more at this point. I don't really know. Their mayor is Sharon Weston Broom. There's going to be a common denominator at the very end of this I'm going to bring up here, but all of these cities are setting records, records. They're, some of them are smashing records in murders, killing, killing, murder, death, kill. Get it? Columbus, Ohio. Andrew Ginther, 46 years old. He's another guy. There it is. The 179 they were at. Indianapolis. Indianapolis is another city that set a record with their mayor, Joe Hugset, another attorney. 
all these people with their their law degrees, you would think that there's going to be a little bit more of a understanding of the law and maybe things that work and don't work or what whatnot, but apparently not. Now, Jackson, Mississippi, the mayor, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, so I apologize. Chokwe Anpar Lumumba. He's an attorney, but he's also an activist. So he's very, he got his finger on the pulse of a lot of things in his, in his world of activism. But one of the things he's done is he has steered the city of Jackson to a new record high. Uh, in 2020, they had 130 killings. Now they have 152. So uh, I'm just going to throw it out that he's not doing that great of a job. Not sure what the economy is like in this country, but we're going to talk about that too. Louisville, Kentucky. Greg Fisher, the little older guy, 63 years old, right? They set a record. Macon, Georgia. If you'll notice, these are not all red states or blue states. There's some red states here. Macon, Georgia. Mayor Lester Miller, another attorney. They set a record. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mayor Tom Barrett, attorney. Another one. New Haven, Connecticut. They've had the highest in a decade. They had 25. 22 of them were unsolved. Mayor Justin Elliker, he's steering that ship. Philly, we should not be surprised, but they blew it out of the water. Um, you got Mayor Jim, uh, I believe it's Kenny, 63 years old. His big claim to fame is he taxed sugar drinks. Yes, because that shit makes a difference. Damn. If we could just get people off the sugar, maybe they'll stop slaughtering one another. There's a good thing. Apparently not, though, because you set a record, too. Now, Portland, Oregon. No shocker there. Ted Wheeler. Ted's starting to come around a little bit because he realizes he's failed miserably. His city has been a national embarrassment. Um, he's a businessman. Right? He made his money in the lumber industry. Uh, he's a younger guy, and they've set a record. So he's staring in the wrong direction as well. Rochester, New York. Who would think Rochester? They almost had the same amount of killings as, as Portland. James Smith. He's now this is great. This is why I bring Rochester up. One, they set a record, so they're part of the 16, but this is awesome. They have an in, uh, interim mayor by a guy named James Smith. I'm not really going to bash him. He kind of just got there recently. But the former mayor who he had to replace was Lovely Warren. That's her name, Lovely Warren, another attorney who, by the way, his home was raided by the New York State Police on search warrants. Her boyfriend was arrested. You look her up. She's got a world of problems. I mean, you talk about a city in, in despair. When your mayor, your mayor's home of one of the larger cities in the state of New York, obviously outside Manhattan and all that, is raided by the state police. You got issues that you need to really take a sit back and take a hard look at. She's also an attorney, by the way. Um, St. Paul, Minnesota, right? A lot of rioting and everything going on up there. They set one. Melvin Carter's their mayor. He's actually, it's, uh, it's, uh, he's a former council person, and he's a son of a, a former police officer. So it's not like he's, you know, never seen uh, the side of law enforcement or anything like that. Last one, 16, Tucson, Arizona. It's surprising me. They set a record. Regina Romero, a former city councilwoman, was elected mayor, for, first Latino female mayor of the city of uh, Tucson. Tucson. Now, interesting. I want you to listen to this. Every single one of those cities, every one of them, the mayor is a Democrat. Every one of them. 16 cities set a record. 
16 cities set homicide killing records. And 100% of those cities are run by a Democratic mayor. You know, if it was 75%, it should cause alarm and say, wow, maybe something's not working. This is 100%. This is the top 16 cities in, in setting records for homicide. Not the, this is not the top number of homicides because, you know, you get Chicago's, New York's, LA's, and those numbers are bigger, but they're also Democrat. These are just 16 cities that set their own records. They shatter their own records. So in addition to all the other poorly run cities who are usually blue, this is the 16 that shattered records this year and every single one of them have a Democratic mayor. Now, what happens when we have crime? We have a response. So let's say there is a killing or there is an armed robbery or there is a sexual assault. Somebody calls usually the police and it kicks off a subsequent investigation, right? Okay. What happens after that? Well, it all depends. Depends on which way the investigation goes. Ideally, you would like a rapid response and quick resolution, perpetrators to be caught and brought to justice. That's the perfect world. That's our scenario. That's what our system is really designed to do. And that's one of those things that we we all hope happens. We all hope that no, you know, we're, we're never a victim of a crime, but God forbid, you know, we hope the system works its course. What has happened in the last several years? Really the last year hard, but in the last several years, there has been an outpouring of negative media with regards to law enforcement. I'm not saying some of it's uh, not deserved. You know, there's, there's mistakes that are made and people, people certainly have the right to critique and question and criticize if you want. But some of those criticisms have sparked things like defund the police, abolish the police. Um, we have agencies that say we're going to, we'd rather have social workers respond with the police. There's a, there's a plethora of, of criticisms. There's, there's ideas that are being floated around. And just let's take a second. As far as, as far as crime scenes, going under those yellow tapes out there and doing what it is you're supposed to do. What can we hope to achieve? Let's just start at the top by abolishing the police. Man, what do you think is going to happen? Because there are people, I have to address this, as stupid as this idea sounds, you have to address it because there are people out there, literally people, and they're getting media attention. And maybe they're only getting the media attention because they're they're out of their minds and it's so sensationalized and, and, and ludicrous that, you know, the media feels the need to shove a microphone in front of their face. And that, I get it. But take for a minute, just stop. What happens? What happens if you abolish the police? What happens to law and order? Are we all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, right? Are we going to love each other more? Are we going to treat each other with respect? I mean, we're a nation of law and order and we don't even do that. We're going to do that now without any kind of check and balance. The people of this country have every right to demand, demand, not expect, certainly expect, but demand a certain degree of performance from their law enforcement communities. And they're not always going to be happy. I get that. That's just the way it is. You're never going to make everybody happy. But to talk about abolishing police, come on, is the dumbest thing I've ever heard because half the people running around pumping their fists in the air 
scream and abolish the police. If you ever did it, you ever really did it, you're probably the first people that'll get victimized or you're going to be the first people to get killed because you don't have what it takes to actually survive in a violent and animalistic world. You're not really cut from that cloth. The people that are, you're not hearing from. The real pipe hitters out there, the people that have seen violence that get it, you better duck because that's a dumb idea and it's never going to happen. So let's talk about more realistic things. Defunding. Hey, let's take let's take $20 million out of the city's police budget and put it over here, put it there, put it towards parks. So let's put it toward the arts. Yeah, because that's a great idea. I have nothing against the arts. I have nothing against the parks. But there now has been on record factual scenarios where cities have defunded. They've taken a ton of money away from them only within one year to turn around and put it all back and try to hire more people after you chase them all away. See, it doesn't work. You don't defund. And I'm going to talk about an alternative to some of this that's not defunding. It's reinvesting. And we'll get into it in a little bit because I think it's a very viable and important uh, option that people could consider. It goes back to the people demanding the best from their public service people. But defunding and just taking money away and saying, what are you, what are you punishing them? Like, what are you, I'm going to take your skateboard away now and you can't play with it for three days because I didn't like the way you shot that guy the other day. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. And the people that are making most of the complaints have no idea what this job is really like, what, what any of this is really like. They say, they get upset and they say, I've lived in a neighborhood where there's been inherent violence and the police blew this and the police that and the police that. The police aren't the ones going in there and creating this inherent violence. It's the people. And we, we never talk about that in the news. The news loves to throw race in the black and brown communities and this and that, and the police are this and that. Whoa. whoa, whoa. Before the police ever even go there, because most of these are calls for service, whoever the people are in that community are committing these acts of violence. These are calls for service. We've never been permitted to go hunt anybody, thank God. But, you know, so let's not ever forget where it all begins. The actions of individuals, the criminal actions of individuals that, uh, that do this. So as the system moves on, the investigation unfolds and maybe they find some things and they can charge. They make an arrest. They criminally charge an individual. That's a male, female, whoever it may be. And now this has to get forwarded to a district attorney or a prosecutor. When that happens, these, these entities are the check and balance. They look at the investigation. They review it from a legal standpoint. They see what is chargeable, what how to move forward into the court system, whether it be plea offers, plea bargains, or trials. And, um, and, and to start off with, just whether to charge or not charge, uh, grand juries, and then trials. Now, we have to put a lot of weight into a district attorney. And in most normal states, the district attorneys are elected. They have to give their resume to the public. They put their commercials out on TV. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I've been a prosecuting attorney for so many years, or I've been a criminal defense attorney for so many years. I've worked in the public. I've done so many trials, and I would love to be your district attorney. Whatever. Other states, they, they're appointed right, by the king or the queen, which is the governor. There's only a few states that do that, but these are giveaway jobs. You, all you have to have is a law degree. You have to have no experience in court. You have to have no experience in anything but a law degree, and then you're good to go if they pass you. 
And that's a whole that's a that's a topic for an episode another day. But this is gen- generally how they get put in place. They're either appointed or they're elected. Most of the time it's an elected position. Now, their job is to look this case over, look everything over, and then they're going to make the decision, all right, let's do it. We're going to go to trial or whatever it is. So this brings us to our next massive problem in this country. Some, especially recently as of today, some district attorneys in major metropolitan cities around this country have made the decision, and some of them have made the open public announcements, that they're just not going to do it anymore. They're not going to charge people for certain things. And one of the reasons they they say this is mass incarceration is wrong. Okay. Think about that statement. Mass incarceration. Mass incarceration. I'm not talking about mass. I'm talking about that one guy. That one guy that did an armed robbery with a stolen pistol. I'm not talking about the mass. I'm talking about him. See, when we look at criminal investigations, you have to look at the case by itself, in and of itself, the facts and circumstances and the evidence. And then we apply the rule of law and the rules of evidence and the rules of the court and everything else. We're not talking about the greater good of masses here. It's the action of one individual that may or may not have been criminal in nature. And then we make the decision on that individual, not a mass, not a year-end tally or anything like that. But that's what we're getting right now. And they're saying, well, mass incarceration hasn't proven to be very effective. So what they want to do is they've, they've come up with this idea of bail reform. Look, we don't want to hold them. So we're going to put them out on bail and we're going to let some people out. Now, it's kind of funny, right? Because I, I started this off talking about the quote unquote insurrection. And how many people that are literally being charged with like criminal trespass are still in jail? So what we're really talking about is not an across the board idea. It's select. And you can make these things up and make them sound like, hey, this is for the greater good of all people that we're going to do bail reform. Right. Right up until the point where it's still the same selective bullshit that it always ever was. And then your credibility is gone. So when I got guys for criminal mischief or interrupting a public meeting that are still in a jail cell somewhere on a federal charge, but I got a guy in New York City who just did an armed robbery yesterday with a gun to somebody's head, and he's out on bail three hours later, nobody can tell me that this is okay. This is not the system that you really want to sell us. And when we have district attorneys that are embracing this and they're saying, we need a new way. Okay, well, listen. If we need a new way, you explain to me why we need a new way and what your plans are that are going to be effective. Letting armed robbers out, I've been doing this a long time. It's not a good thing. Now, the rate of recidivism is going to be higher. We already have numerous cases where you let people out on bail who never would have been let out on bail uh, the way you did it, and they've already killed again. So once that starts to occur, nobody wants to talk about this, the fact that it's failing, that this is, that this is not a good idea. They all want to talk about how this is going to make the world safer. Safer. I, you know, I try the best that I can sometimes to listen to what people have to say. I sit and listen a lot. And there's sometimes I pick up on it right away. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. I get it. There's other times I go, I don't really get it. Can you explain it to me again? And there's other times, rare, but there are times where I look at it and I go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, if you've ever seen that, that movie, uh, old school where they go to the debate and the guy at the end says, that's the most incomprehensible thing I've ever heard. And everybody in the room now is dumber for having listened to you. It's like that. 
that's like the response I want to give. And you get, uh, there's a new, new district attorney in the city of New York. And one of the, Alvin Bragg is his name. And I'm going to go through him too. But one of the things he says is this is going to make the world a safer place. Alvin, there's nothing about this that's going to make anything safer. You're taking a person who committed a crime and you're letting them out and expecting them to come back to you to, for their hearing. They may come back, but nothing about letting a violent criminal out makes anybody any safer. So I don't really understand why you, why you would try to float that by everybody, except for one thing. And I'll, I'm going to go through a list of DAs here. This country has, how many of you played Little League, right? Little League baseball or baseball at any level up to including, you know, not, not really the higher, higher levels, but let's say Little League. And you had that kid on your team who just sucked, right? He just couldn't catch a ball. The ball hit him in the head. The grounders went through his legs. And up at, play, up at the bat, every time the ball came in from the pitcher, he would shy away or he would swing wildly and miss, right? He just sucked. But he was a good kid and he's a good friend of yours so they're all on the team. That's like your neighbors right now. Your neighbor's like the little league kid that sucks because they sit and listen to this news every day and they believe it. And what they're getting is the fastball being blown right by them. The pitch is just passing them. And they're not doing anything to improve their opinions. They're not really listening at all. They're just swinging and missing at everything. And when a DA says, this new system is going to make the world safer, there's a tremendous amount of jackass people out there that go, yeah, I can see how. And I, I, to those people, I just look at them and go, um, well, I don't. So do me a favor, man. Just explain it. Well, you know, why are we keeping them in? I don't know. Maybe because they're fucking violent. Maybe because I don't want them around my family. Maybe because that guy just stuck a pistol to somebody's head three days ago. And now he's back out in a bar drinking beers. So while you're that little league kid who sucks and believing that this is going to be okay, maybe you want to get a mitt and get in the game and realize that this shit is not going to make this world safer. Let's not even, we haven't even talked about how this is going to embolden other people who have yet to commit crimes where they're going to look and go, oh, hell man, they're not going to do shit to me. I'll get a misdemeanor charge because they're downgrading everything, which we're going to talk about. And I'll be out in two days. So fuck it. Why do I care? I'll just keep doing this. This is what I'm going to do. And we're going, no, man, it's a kinder, gentler world. Let's, let's try to help the rate of recidivism. <laughs> yeah, well, you stop sticking people in jail, the rate of recidivism goes down because it's a bullshit statistic. So we need to start thinking about what we really want to do with some of these violent people and doing some violent crimes. So here's a crime that one of the things they want to talk about getting rid of, resisting arrest. Okay. The law is very clear. It says you are required to submit to a lawful arrest. Simple as that. You are required to submit to a lawful arrest. In that lawful arrest, you're going to be told what you're charged with. You're going to be read your rights and you are going to probably be handcuffed. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, whatever it is, but you are required by law. Well, Alvin Bragg, the New York City guy, he just came out and goes, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. All right. You've probably all heard of the butterfly effect, right? It, it, it's kind of like the ripples in a the water. They start off as a raindrop hits the water, the ripples go. The farther they go, the, the ripples get bigger and they turn into swells and waves. And right, So the butterfly's wings flaps and it creates a breeze. 
Well, that breeze gets larger and larger, turns into a wind, can turn into whatever, a hurricane, right? So the butterfly effect, the idea behind it is it gets worse and worse and worse. What is the butterfly effect of this bullshit? What are the police going to do? When, when resisting arrest, they got to put hands on you and you turn around, you swing at them or you want to, you want to physically try to resist and get away. And you got a DA who you as a law enforcement officer are looking to, to be the next step in the system, to make the system work, the one we all embrace work. And you shit on your law enforcement by saying, listen, I know you got into a fight with the guy last night, but we're going to let him out because you know what, blah, 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 whatever. Here's the butterfly effect, folks. They're not coming. They're not going to wrestle these people to the ground. They're not going to do this. Houston the other day, George Floyd, right? America's hero. His niece, young child, tragically killed in a, with a, in a, gun, a gun accident or a, gun, a shooting, not an accident. Some scumbag was shooting and he hit this small child. Well, the big outcry down there was, well, it took so long for the police to arrive. Yeah, no shit. What do you think? They're going to come running for you? You can't constantly kick the dog while he's down and expect them to love you. That's human nature. You can say, yeah, but they're professionals. Well, start treating them like it. They do a lot of things for a lot of people and they're not getting a lot of credit. They're getting a lot of abuse and a lot of criticism. And there are times when they need to be criticized and held to account and they need to be, you know, put in their place and just like everybody else, just like all of you and me, but you can't keep shitting on them and expect them to jump in a car and come running to your aid. They'll get there when they get there. It's called a call for service. I'll get there when we get there. That's it. Sorry. You created it. Remember that. Part of this is the public's reaction to everything that's going on. And part of their reaction is caused by the perception of what they see in the media. Most of these people that are bad-mouthing law enforcement have no personal experience with law enforcement whatsoever. They're all quoting some shit off a media channel or seeing some news clip they saw from one of your brainwashing American news networks. Very few are positive towards law enforcement. It's, God, it's gotten to the point where very few are even positive towards military. I mean, when's the last time we shit on our military people? Vietnam. And that was wrong then. And it's even more wrong now because we should have learned from, from that era to embrace these people, but we don't. So we have to be very careful on how we, we react and treat this. And, what, and, and quite honestly, we can demand certain things you know, from the media. We can say, hey, cut the shit. Start telling us the truth. Give us the facts and move on. I don't need your opinion. I really don't need a news person's opinion. Because once you start giving me your opinion, you're no longer a journalist. You're a talk show host. And I've said that before, and I believe that wholeheartedly. So I want to go through a couple, a couple of district attorneys around the country. Some of them are going to sound very familiar to you. Some may not, but I want to talk about them. Larry Krasner, he is the district attorney for the city of Philadelphia in that area. He is one that is all about bail reform, letting people out, not charging. Everyone on this list I'm going to talk to is pretty similar in this. Kimberly Fox, Chicago district attorney. <clears throat> she has been public, publicly admonished and admonished, I think, too, by the courts out there for not being forthcoming in her decision-making process and her, and her actual professional actions in the Jussie Smollett case. Remember Jussie? 
He was the guy that was allegedly physically assaulted on a zero degree night while he went out to get a Subway sandwich by two white guys in the hood in Chicago screaming, this is MAGA country and put a, a noose around his neck, which just came to trial that it was all bullshit and he fabricated the entire thing. But Kimberly Fox didn't want to charge him. Chicago put like, uh, I may be wrong about this, but I want to say it was like 80 detectives which when I heard that, I was like, I shook my head on this case because this just had so much media hype and media attention and every jerk off in Hollywood decided to come out and, and have an opinion about it. Oprah, everybody else, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, Joe Biden, he's another one, you know, this kid, uh, who is it? Kamala Harris, I think he's a modern day lynching. You know, they all jumped on, but these are your sheep, folks. These are your sheep. These are the sheep. Um, and they all, you know, jumped on, on his defense. And it was like, Two days, three days where Chicago PD came out and go, yeah, we're not 100% sure this happened this way. And they, they, they softened it a little bit. You know, they didn't want to just basically say he was full shit. But then it came out he was. And she dropped it. She didn't want to charge him. The feds came in and looked at it. Everybody's looking at it going, what do you mean? What are you doing? That's Kimberly Fox. That is your elected district attorney for the city of Chicago. Arguably one of the cities that is an absolute biggest shit show in the United States with the killing. And it goes on. We've talked about the killing there every weekend, right? Every Monday, the killing numbers are given like an ESPN scoreboard thing because it's so out of control. Again, politicians having an effect on crime. Diana Becton, Contra Costa, California. She's another one. Okay. There's going to be another thing I'm going to I'm going to come in with a common denominator of all these. One of the most infamous people, George Gascon, my God. California's losing their mind. They got enough problems. This guy is kind of completely lost his marbles. He doesn't want to charge anybody with anything. So I'm not really sure what LA is going to do. They're trying to recall him. So he may be out. Who knows? But the way that California recalls everybody is they all come in, they do it, and then they say, well, no, let's give him another chance, like, like their governor. Kimberly Gardner, St. Louis. She's the one. Uh, this is one in San Francisco. Uh, probably mispronouncing the name, but Chesa, C-H-E-S-A, first name, Bodine, B-O-U-D-I-N. If I mispronounce that, I'm, I apologize. San Francisco, another pillar of American dream, right? San Fran, another city that everybody's trying to get out of. He's got a, re he's, this is the guy you elected. You elected him. San Francisco, you listening? You put this guy in office. His former job was a translator for the dictator Hugo Chavez. That was one of his jobs. What does that say about him? His father was basically a terrorist in the weather underground. And for those of you that don't know them, they had a they did the uh, Brinks truck robberies. Uh, they were arrested for plots to attempt to overthrow the United States government. I mean, these people were basically labeled as terrorists. That's his dad. That's his father figure. That's his guide in life. And you can tell that it, it, it obviously had some effect because as a grown man, he decided to be the translator for the dictator Chavez. He's now your district attorney making decisions on who gets charged and who doesn't. So all of these police departments, Cook County, Chicago PD, Contra Costa, California, the counties of LA, that's LAPD, LA County Sheriff, all of them, St. Louis, San Fran, and Alvin Bragg in New York City. Your agencies are going to start to slow down, folks. They're not going to be out there hard charging it. Now, New York City just elected a new mayor. And he was a former police officer. He was a transit police officer. And then he, uh, I think transit got absorbed into NYPD. And he got promoted up the line to captain. He took the tests and he got promoted. Then he left. 
he doesn't have a great reputation with the PD. Um, guys like Ray Kelly, former commissioner, came out and talked about him, saying he was a malcontent and everything. But he's there. Now, here's the thing about this guy. I hope he does well. I don't know how he's going to do. I have no idea. But from the bottom of my heart, I believe he does well. Because the city of New York deserves better. The last mayor that they had may, may have been the worst mayor of any, his, any U.S. city in the history of the United States of America. That guy was an absolute disaster and drove the city into the ground. The ground. To the point where people, millionaires, were selling apartments just to get out. It was bad. Commerce, economy, tanked. Businesses were leaving. This is the capital of the world, folks. This isn't St. Louis. This isn't Chicago. This is New York City. It is different. All those places can be great. But New York City is the capital of the world. It's where the World Financial District is. It's where the United Nations is. This is a different place. And we literally just had what many people believe to be a card-carrying communist in Mayor Bill de Blasio as their mayor. They used to call him that all the time. He's the guy that went on his honeymoon to Cuba, or talked about Fidel Castro. Now, let's go back to these DAs real quick. There's one thing that each of those names that I read off have in common, and it's their funding source. And their funding source is a gentleman by the name of George Soros. Many of you have heard that name. And uh, George Soros, I'd love to sit down and talk to him. I really actually would love to sit and just have an interview with him. He's like 90-something years old now, 91, I believe. He's born in Hungary. He's a philanthropist, billionaire. He has a thing called Open Society Group, and it's a non group of nonprofits, and they dole out cash to political action campaigns, PACs, PACs. And they're controlled by attorneys and criminal justice reform activists, Whitney, I want to say Timus, 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 T-Y-M-A-S. She's the treasurer of the Justice and Safety PAC, as well as 20 other similarly named groups at both the state and federal levels, according to public filings. Soros is pumping money. I mean, I'm looking at $1.7 million into Krasner's, $190,000 into Gardner's in St. Louis, over a million into Alvin Bragg's in New York City. Money talks, folks. He's putting these people in place, and there's a caveat. He wants this socialist-style bail reform, let them, let them all out, let's not do this, let's not do that. He's moving hard line away from law and order, and he always has. He broke the Bank of England almost in, in, by selling short years ago, and this is where he started making his money. They attribute him to being partially responsible, <clears throat> excuse me, partially responsible for the collapse of like the economies in the Philippines and even, even in Japan at times. This guy is a major player, and he is brilliant, okay? He's brilliant. He may, he may not be a good human being, but he's a brilliant human being, and he knows how to manipulate the system. And this is the United States of America. I think he lives down the street from Hillary and Bill Clinton up in Chap Chappaqua. He did. He had a house up there. But his he has like a shock and awe type of mentality on his political activism. He turns political races completely around by just dumping shit tons of money at it and telling all the inner city people who have nothing that will believe anything that he's going to help. They're going to help. And the people in the inner cities have believed, not all of them, but some of them, that, you know what, if you let everybody out of jail and you let this all just go on, it's better for us. Well, we're going to see how that works. But he's done uh, George Gascon, uh, Krasner, all of them, Kimberly Fox, Alvin Bragg. 
one of his uh, political action is the color of change. So he, he always throws a racial component in there. This is what he does. And these folks uh, are winning elections and then they're destroying cities. And I'm not sure. The reason I want to talk to him is I want to say, wow, what, what, are you, what are you hoping to get out of this? Because you're literally taking some of the greatest cities in the world, Los Angeles, City of Angels, right? And you're just, you're decimating it. You're, you're creating a, a level of crime that's in some of these cities that has not been seen before. I just named 16 of them that have set homicide records. Just give me an idea. Between like 2015 and 2019, they spent more than $17 million just on local district attorney races and all in support of ultra left-wing candidates. And it's expected to go up over $20 million. We've, it's, it's nothing, nobody's ever seen anything like this. Now, the policies that he pretty much puts in place, let's put it this way, he's putting them in place, abolishing bail, no bail, just let them out. Placing hundreds of violent criminals, uh, uh, criminals on electronic tracking systems. Think about this. The country saw a 30% increase in homicides in 2020. Now, some of you may be driving in your car listening to this. You might be sitting somewhere. You might be cutting the grass or shoveling snow or whatever it is. You got the earbuds in. You're listening. Hopefully, you're listening. Thank you if you are. But I want you to think back about what I just said. One year, this country saw a 30% increase in homicides. Let's put that in perspective. Wouldn't it be nice in 2020 if your 401k went up 30%? Because I guarantee you'd be looking at that piece of paper that you got in the mail saying the 30% and telling them what the number is going to be going. Holy shit. Yes. That's awesome. That's a huge number. What's a huge number when you put it in dollar signs that you've made? It's a huge number too, folks, when you talk about the body count in these inner cities. 30% it went up. The largest single year spike since they be courting began recording crime uh, statistics 60 years ago. It also saw a 24% decrease in arrests across the country. What does that tell you? It goes back to what I was just talking about. They're not coming. Not in a hurry. They're going to do it. Uh, New Haven, right? 25 homicides? 22 are un unsolved right now. Keep kicking them in the balls, folks. Watch what happens. 8 million first-time gun purchasers last year. Here's the thing that's interesting about that. Some of those 8 million are not your Second Amendment rah-rah people, folks, because they already had guns. This is the soccer mom that swore she'd never have one. This is the, the, the liberal person who's anti-gun, but they quietly went out and bought one. Why? Because they are afraid. They are afraid. So they're buying firearms at a record level, a record level. Uh, I have some friends who are uh, sporting goods store owners and gun dealers. They said they can't even get them. Certain higher end guns they can't even get. It's it's nuts. Philadelphia, a city of 1.5 million people, had more homicides than New York and LA, the country's two largest cities. Think about that. So everywhere, all these cities are up, and it's nuts. In LA, uh, they're talking about the criminal justice firms have recently led to a wave of looting and violent crimes every day on the news. You're seeing them running into the stores. <laughs> I laugh. I shouldn't laugh because this is horrible. There's one store, one, <clears throat> one, one video where they went into like a Home Depot or a hardware store and stole like lump hammers, little sledgehammers and hammers. 
only to then go over to the jewelry stores and everybody else and smash all the glass cases. So they looted one store to get the burglary tools to go to the other store to get the shit that costs a lot of money. And you know what we did about it? Nothing. They're all wearing hoods. They're all wearing their damn COVID masks, right? Because we mandated the shit out of that. And you can't ID any of them. Soros funneled more than $2.5 million into California political action committees to support Gascon, the DA of LA. He left the San Francisco. He left one failed city to go turn the other one into a failed city. Um, he says in his inauguration speech in 20, that the rush to incarcerate generations of kids of color had torn the social fabric of our communities. The status quo has not made us safe. Well, the status quo may not have made uh, everything a lot safer, but you know, whenever they give these statistics about kids of color and they go out and they say, you know, our incarceration rates uh, amongst people of color are unacceptable. Uh, look, man, I'm just going to ask the question. Did they do anything, those kids, did they do anything to be in that position? Did they commit any kind of crime? I mean, we're talking about it like we're rounding them up, like Japanese internment camp during the, you know, back during the war. All these people that were incarcerated, did they do something? And if so, what did they do? If you're telling me that the incarceration rate is high on things like loitering, I'm with you. We don't need to do that. But when you're telling me people are putting guns to people's chests and heads and this and that and the other thing, and we're saying, well, we're not going to incarcerate them because they didn't pull the trigger. I got a problem with that. I got a big problem with that. So all of them are saying the same thing. We want to end mass incarceration, but they never really say what mass incarceration is. They also want to talk about uh, criminal justice reform. Now, these, ter these, these terms I'm throwing at you, mass incarceration, criminal justice reform, bail reform, you've been hearing it on the news. I guarantee everybody listening is going, yeah, I've heard all this. But do you know what any of it means? I mean, do you know what really what they mean when they say it, is what I should ask. Do you know what they mean by, by criminal justice reform? You don't. You know why? Because they don't. They don't actually know what it is. They all want it, but they don't know what it is. What are we doing to reform the criminal justice system? letting bad guys out? Is that really reform? Or is that a knee-jerk reaction to something? I don't know if it's actually helping anything. But George Soros seems to be the guy behind a lot of this. 59 attorneys since uh, since uh, Bowdoin, Bodine, whatever his name, took office as the DA in, in San Francisco. 59 attorneys resigned. Maybe they don't believe in what he's doing. But but the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, announced an emergency crackdown on crime. He's like, I've had it. He's another politician. He's a Democrat too, but he's, he's, he basically says it's time to rein in the, the reign of criminals who are destroying our city. It's time for that to come to an end. Mayor, there was never a time for that to begin, okay? You allowed this to happen. You, your predecessor, your jackass district attorney, you allowed this to happen. There was never a time for it to ever begin. There was never a time for this to manifest itself into a way of life in these cities. It's not that hard. Just charge the people that need to be charged. And that's where the district attorney's job becomes so critically important. But it's so important for all of us that it becomes, that it's a, that it's, they do it correctly. And it's crazy. Soros is, is one of these people that we hear about, but we never really hear anybody doing anything about it. He's there. He's got so much money that he can, he can do what he wants to do. Um, Again, they go into the racial part of these cities. Uh, I want to give you a statement here. Talking about the black and brown communities, one of the troubling aspects of the spike in murders is that it is disproportionately hitting poor and minority communities. Wording is important, folks. Think about that. One of the troubling aspects of the spike in murders is that 
it dis it is disproportionately hitting. See, if you listen to that and you're not paying that much attention, it sounds like one of the troubling aspects of these minority communities is something from somewhere else is coming in like a meteor and killing them all. No, 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 no. They're killing themselves in these communities. It is affecting the poor and minority communities. And it is be, being, these crimes are being committed by people in those communities. So we have to fix that. In previous episodes, I gave you statistics, alarming statistics on what's going on in these communities, right? 13% of the population committing over 55% of the murder. Just males, black males alone, right? Down to 6% of the population committing 44% of the killing. We can fix this. I'm not making fun. I'm saying we identified this. We can fix it. But letting people out of jail is not the way to do it. Uh, a quote, this has been an ongoing issue for years where black and brown communities have continued to feel the devastation of gun violence. I love that term, gun violence. It's people violence, folks. People commit crimes. People do this. The kid in Charlottesville, uh, where was it? Charlotte, Charlottesville, Virginia. He committed the crime with a car. It's not car violence. He's a jerk off. This is a person committing an act of violence. People that stab people. It's not edged weapon violence. You never hear that term. So there's lobbyists and there's political active, uh, political action committees that are anti-gun. So they want to always call it gun violence. It is human being violence. Remember that. Now, they said the more important piece, this is a quote, the more important piece is to get at the real causes of homicide and the root cause of gun violence in communities is racism and poverty. Well, in these, in these inner city communities, I'm not really, poverty actually, socioeconomic factors come into play. I agree with that 100%. can be fixed. Tell me how racism does. Tell me how racism, how, how people in these communities are killing one another within these communities at an alarming rate. And you're going to, one, you're going to call it gun violence instead of people of violence. And you're going to call it racism when they're all of the same community. This is where they skew your opinion. This is where I get back to that media driving narratives in a different direction. It's, it's the people violence. We have to stop this. We have to make committing an act of violence, whether you stab them, shoot them or whatever else, we have to make it something that they won't do because the ramifications of doing it are incredibly high. The punishment they will, they will pay will be incredibly high. You might say, well, they'll still do it. Well, then we deal with it. We'll deal with that. But right now, we're not really giving them any consequences. And it's, and, and it's really sad. Portland, the city of Portland, <clears throat> they've, had their, they've had all kinds of issues up there and problems and struggles. And there's so many good people up there that I do know that have to deal with this. You know, So the Portland Police Bureau, PPB, their homicide detectives, quote, are overwhelmed with their staggering caseload. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. When you allow the city to go down the shitter and you allow violent crime to run untethered, that's what's going to happen. Your caseload is going to get crazy. Uh, they've added eight detectives to their unit, but are still drastically understaffed. That's a lot. Now, Lieutenant Nathan Shepard is with the police bureau. His statement was, we have bolstered our homicide unit, but just like with the FIT team, that means we have to take people from other places. In other words, they're going to create a unit and they're going to take from others because they don't have new people. Nobody wants to be a cop anymore and they sure as shit don't want to be one in Portland the way they're, they're being treated. So they're losing bodies and they're trying to 
staff homicide units because your killings are going up, but you don't have any people. He says there have been less people to work things like property crimes and everyone ultimately suffers. He's right. He's right. But one of the things Portland did is they had this thing called a focused intervention team. I'm sorry, that's their new, they have one now. We call it the focused intervention team. It's their new group assigned to preventing shootings. Great. I think it's great. I don't know what you're doing to prevent the shootings. I'd like to know. Um, and this Lieutenant Shepard said, this could be, they're now fully staffed and they're beginning training on January 6th. That's yesterday, folks. Portland City Council disbanded the controversial gun violence reduction team in 2020. And Lieutenant Shepard's that could be part of the blame as to why the homicide rate went up. I don't know Lieutenant Shepard, but I agree with Lieutenant Shepard. You get rid of a unit called the gun violence reduction team. Um, yeah, your numbers are going to go up because you're not doing anything else in the meantime. And now you've created something else called a focus intervention team. What the fuck is that? Now, let's be honest, right? It's just whipped cream on shit. It's the same thing you had. You just gave it another name with another little fluff thing to it. The bottom line is you got bad people out there doing bad things. And now you have to send good people out there to stop it. You can pot, you can't, but you know that old saying, you can only polish a turd so much. It is what it is, folks. You can name the unit, whatever you want. They got to go down and crack down on this. And in a, in a city like Portland, where they're not very supportive of their police, what are they really going to be allowed to do? My heart goes out to the Portland PD. They're probably trying like hell to succeed. But you have, you have mayors that interfere with things saying, stand down, stand down. I'm not even sure a mayor can legally has the authority to do that. So one of the things he says is crime has risen everywhere, but here it's been at historic levels. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that there are some clear consequences to getting rid of our team that address gun violence. Good for you, man. Because you came out and you said it. You did it in a nice way, politically smooth, but you're right. You'd be remiss. I know what you're saying. I'm going to say it for you. It was a fucking stupid move to get rid of it. You're going to change it and try to do something else. But you got rid of the team that was combating it and all hell broke loose. That's kind of what is going on. But the mayors won't say that. But big city commissioner, <coughs> city commissioner for Portland, Joanne Hardesty, said, this is awesome, said in April, she didn't think getting rid of the team caused the spike in shootings. She says, it's a totally unrelated issue, Hardesty said. The police have a role. This is her quote, by the way. Police have a role, but their role is simply to solve crime. Their role is not to prevent crime. Their role is not to intervene. Did you hear that? I, I'm, and I'm reading this. This has to be a misprint. But it's here. Editors have looked at this and, you know, this is out of uh, a couple things. Even Al Jazeera has reported this, folks. Okay. The Middle Eastern Arab media outlet. Police have a role, but their role is simply to solve crime. Okay. In the agency that I worked for, the first general order, and it came out back in 1921, and was recently put back up in every police station there as a reminder uh, of, of what the general order was, was talking about prevention of crime. And that is exactly, I'm looking something up here, you probably hear me typing. The prevention of crime is like one of police's main roles. For her to say this, she's, I don't know, she's so out of touch, it's like ridiculous. I don't even understand what, what the hell she, um, what she was thinking. And the first general order, one of the first things is be police officers of the state. The second thing is to prevent crime, pursue and apprehend offenders. I, I don't, it's for her to say that you have no chance, Portland, 
you have no chance of succeeding in anything. If that is your city commissioner, and that is an accurate, if, if that is in fact an accurate statement that the police's job is not to prevent crime or intervene, I don't know where you go, man. I don't know where you go from there. I really have no idea where you go because you're, you're destined to fail. Because everything she said, it's the, compl- the truth is actually the complete opposite of that. The complete opposite of that. Cities like Chicago, this is their most violent year on record. They have 797 killings. 797, folks. Okay, here's, a, here's something that you're going to need to hear. 81% of those were African-American. They were black. 81% of your victims killed were black. Your black community is being devastated by violent crime. 15% of those were Latino. In the county that Chicago is within, Cook County, there's a total of 834. Other people say it was actually over 1,000. The last time it was this high was 1994, when a massive crime spike. What do you think about this? That's 66 killings a month, roughly, right? About 14 a week, at least two a day. How are your homicide detectives going to work here doing this? Anybody that's been in this field that has worked a homicide, you understand the amount of work that not only goes in to finding the perpetrators, but then obtaining enough physical evidence to make your case, to present it to your DA, and then to present it to a grand jury to get an indictment and then move on to a trial and get a guilty conviction at a trial. These are not easy things to do. And when you're getting 66 killings a month, you can't keep your head above water, folks. You you just can't do it. And if you say, well, we'll just staff it with more homicide people, you're doing nothing to reduce this. This is not new in Chicago. We've been listening to the statistics in the city of Chicago for years. We've been listening to jackass mayors in Chicago talk about things like their their policies and procedures they want to do and put in place that have been failures. Now, I will say this about the city of Chicago. This is not the entire city. And it's very important that people that may want to go to Chicago, go see a Cubs game, a White Sox game, a Bears game, um, you know, Blackhawks game, whatever. It's not the whole city. This is a section of the city that is like a war zone. There's a lot of Chicago that is still a fantastic place to visit, a great tourist attraction, fantastic food, and great people. And I want to say that about Chicago. Don't ever look and say, I'm never going to Chicago. I'll die. Because it's only a certain area that you'd probably never go to anyways. But this is at a level that we've never seen. It's insanity. In other... states, like my home state of New Jersey. We do things when we lock people up, we have to do what's called a public safety assessment. And this is, you know, they want to keep people out of jail. So there are pretrial services that they put in place. Um, They require them to prepare what's called a PSA, a public safety assessment, whenever someone's taken into custody on a warrant complaint. You have warrants and summonses. Warrants are your indictables, summonses are on your misdemeanor stuff. 
So on a warrant complaint, you're more serious. Let's do a, a risk assessment. How are they going to be? At face value, it doesn't sound bad, right? All right, let's do a risk assessment. Now, not everybody needs to be in jail. But they do these and then they get a score. And the, the problem that I have is you submit this thing into a system, a software package, and it pumps, utilizes a mathematical algorithm to assess the risks associated with releasing an individual prior to a trial. All right. We have abandoned humans, the human component of the decision-making process. We have removed the district attorneys and their experience, maybe sometimes their inexperience, but mostly their experience. And more importantly, we have removed the judges from this for the most part. So the factors that are taken into account by the algorithm to arrive at a risk score utilizing prior historical data, and they use things like the age, the violence involved in the current offense. That sounds smart, right? That's good. I mean, I mean that. Pending charges, what are they? Prior disorderly persons offenses, prior indictable offenses, prior violent crime convictions. These are all good. Failure to appear during the last two years or failure to appear more than two years ago and any prior sentencing. This doesn't sound bad. Those nine factors, I kind of like them. What I don't like is it's an algorithm. I'd rather a judge that's been sitting on the bench for 20 years make the decision. Because they can have a heart and they can also have no heart when they need to. I just don't think we want to turn this world over to an automated system that pumps out a, a, a ticketed receipt. Here's your receipt. You're out. Be back on Tuesday for your trial. It, it it's it's not it's not easy. And some you know they can be released. What happens now? What happens when somebody that we normally would not let out, but this thing comes back and a defense attorney is going to say, "Well, my PSA score is this. I want them out," and they go out, and then they kill somebody. Do we go to that attorney? that defended him and pushed for the PSA thing to be released? Do we then lock them up for being part and partial to the subsequent killing? Or can we not do that? Because the algorithm said it was okay. Once we take the human component out of anything, things get a little dangerous. Now, the last thing I want to talk about on domestic violence issues, and you even hear in, in Pennsylvania, or I'm sorry, in California and New York, they said well, one of the things we, we, we don't, they will still jail for is domestic violence. In our state, and I'm sure in other states we've done, but we've done this thing called ODARA, and it stands for the Ontario Domestic, Domestic Assault Risk Assessment. Ontario, Canada, a socialized country, right? We have done this ODARA assessment, and it's only for domestic violence uh, offenders. So they, again, we have scores. And how is violence defined? We did research and we studied physical violence against a female domestic partner. Hear that? Against females. So immediately, the one thing I, I question I have with this is, you're scoring it only against female victims. There are plenty of domestic incidents out there where males have been victims, but we don't, they're not counting them in this. And it gets even more crazy. If you are a biological born male, well, first of all, let me, let, me, let me lay the groundwork on this. On this ODARA uh, questionnaire and assessment, it is only for males. 
it can only be used against males. So they can be incarcerated based on this Odara score only if you're a male. And it basically, the original Odara comes out of the Ontario Domestic Assault Risk Assessment or Odara is based on information about 589 men known to the OPP, which is the Ontario Provincial Police, for an assault against a female domestic partner or ex-partner. The men were followed through police files for an average of 51 months. During this time, 30% of the men had another official report of domestic violence. Statistical analysis identified the best predictors of repeated domestic. Okay, so our state has adopted something that was based on 589 men over 51 months. But it's only against men. I don't know in Ontario how many women were aggressors. And granted, listen, I know. Domestic is overwhelming, overwhelmingly a violence against women type thing. But I've responded to enough of them where it's not always that case. And there's a lot of times it's a two-way street. And it's very difficult to find out who started this or who who is involved. It's a it's a it's the as a police officer, it's the shittiest call in the world to go on because there's never a win here. Very rarely is there a clear cut victim and a clear cut aggressor. There are times when there are, and people get crushed for it as they should. But there are other times when it's not. So with this Odara, it's only it only goes against men. So here's the crazy part. But first of all, some of you may say, well, that sounds awful discriminatory, gender biased. Well, you might be right. That's your opinion and you're entitled to it and you might be right. I might actually agree with you. But another thing we do here is if you are a biologically born male, but you identify as a female, they don't do the Odara questionnaire. If you are, I believe if you are a born female and identify as a male, they do. And if you are, so if I basically have a guy, this is where this gets screwy. And I'm not talking about actually transgender people here. I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm making fun of a system here that's like seriously lacking in, in qualifiers. If I'm a guy, clearly a male, clearly in my, uh, as a police officer, my observation, you identify as a male. In other words, you're a dude, you're dressed like a guy, you are, everything about your life is a guy and you've heard about this and you are now brought in for domestic violence. You're dressed in men's clothes. You have no identifiers of identifying as a woman, but you look at that police officer and go, and they say, listen, we're going to do a questionnaire and you, li- you literally say, yeah, right now I identify as a woman. You can't do it. Well, the rule is you can't. So we're trying, my point is this, we're trying hard to come in with some reform ideas and we're trying to change some things around, but we're missing the mark a lot. We're coming up with these ludicrous little scenarios and um, we're trying to make everybody happy. We're trying to hug everyone. We don't want to insult anyone. Unfortunately, folks, the world's not all that nice of a place all the time. We are going to insult people. So we have to wrap our own head around that. We, We look at some of this reform ideas and things that we want to do. And most of the documents that I have read and looked at said, we sat down with a group of experts, mental health professionals, police administrators, chiefs, college professors, defense attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, and judges. And, and these are the ideas we came up with. And I, that's don't hold me to those exact things, but it's all along those lines. But the thing that I found interesting was, there was something missing, actual practitioners. 
Everywhere I looked, and every time criminal justice reform was brought up, and they said, we, we brought in a team of experts. You never brought in the guy that does this shit for a living, though. You never went down to the street level guys and let them speak with anonymity and with complete candor and give you their opinions. Most of the time, they're never asked. They're never given a seat at that table. It's all somebody that literally shines a seat with their ass for a living in another capacity. It's never the frontline practitioner. It's never that patrol sergeant or the frontline supervisor even. It's always academics, elected officials, and some other jerk off that likes to hear themselves speak. And that's where we get into this problem of maybe these systems don't work because you're not asking the right people. I'm not saying you got to have a group of, of, of cantankerous, uh, jaded, cynical patrol people because you can't do that either, folks. You can't do that either. You got to have a, a, a thing across the board. The other thing a lot of them never bring in is the public. The public you serve is never, a lot of times they don't get a seat at the table, but then they want to do these drastic things. Well, let's do a civilian complaint review board. Okay. I'm going to be involved in a police involved shooting and I'm going to get judged by people that don't do any of this for a living. Oh, we'll give them some training. Yeah. What you're not giving them though is experience. So I'm not sure I want that either. Now I don't have an answer here. There's a lot of things that can be done to make the world better. And there's a lot of things that can be done to make this profession better. And everybody complains about the police and they got to be doing this and got to be doing this. I'm going to start off by saying this. The public has to stop being assholes. When you are encountered by police, you may not like it. As a matter of fact, nobody likes it. I'm a I've been a career police officer. If I see the red lights behind me, I get butterflies in my stomach still. And I'm probably not going to get a ticket. But I still get a little nervous. I'm like, oh. And I'm extraordinarily respectful. Now, part of that comes from I've been in their shoes. We need to stop complaining about them and show a little empathy and, and, and understand that their job sucks and they're not getting rich doing it. And none of them are complaining about that, by the way. But when they show up at your house and they show up at this and show up at that, understand this is a pretty shitty job. It really is. It can be very rewarding. And that's historically why we've had so many good people go into this job. Just like any other professional, we've had a bunch of assholes go into it too. We try to weed them out. It's not always going to happen. And the bad things will happen from time to time and we police our own, hopefully. But the purpose of this episode was to kind of bring your attention again to the media aspect and the politicians and the things that are being said and how misleading they are. Today's January 7th, 2022. Yesterday I heard the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, equate a riot a, first of all, a protest turned into a riot by a, a small, much smaller group of people at the Capitol last year, a year ago, yesterday. She equated it to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. When we have people in this country, our so-called leaders making statements like that, it's time that we understand that most of these folks, they don't know what they're doing. They're in so far over their head, respect, respective heads, that we're probably going to spin out of control and we're going to fail for the amount of time that they are where they are in the positions that we've we've given them. I want you to look at the news clips. I want you to look at some of this and what's going on. Look at the people that we have elected and put in place. And remember what Barack Obama said, elections have consequences. So cities like Philly 
Chicago, LA, St. Louis, San Francisco, New York City. You folks, listen to me. You've created this shit show that you live in right now by putting in district attorneys that, that refuse to do their jobs, that refuse to enforce the laws and refuse to prosecute violent crimes. So I don't know what else to tell you all. You're going to have to live with it until you can change this, but elections have consequences. I'm not here necessarily to change your mind because some of you might totally disagree with everything I just said. But I would really like you to open your mind and look at what's going on around you every day. Look at the media that you choose to tune into and say to yourself, are they being honest? Are they even being, are they even close to being honest? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. You decide. Let us know what you think, all right? Everybody be safe and have a happy, healthy, and prosperous new year. Take care. We'll talk soon.